0: Now, let's get on with the show.
1: Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Compliance Conversations. I'm CJ Wolf with Healthicity, and my guest today is Mary from formerly from MD Anderson Cancer Center. Welcome, Mary. Thank you, CJ. I'm happy to be here. It's so good to have you, Mary. And I work together at MD Anderson Cancer Center, and she knows so much about clinical research billing. We are so grateful to have her. This is our second episode of a three-part series. So, if you haven't listened to the first episode, you might want to go back and listen to that. We talked about we gave a Mary gave us a nice overview of clinical research billing, and um, she just has so much experience and so much uh, knowledge in this area. So, go back and listen to that one. In this podcast, the second one, we're gonna be talking a little bit more specifically about hiring staff to develop what's known as a Medicare coverage analysis and getting that right skill set. So Mary, let's jump right in, if that's okay. And what is this Medicare coverage analysis? Some of our listeners probably don't even know what that is.
0: Okay, sure, and so thank you again, CJ, for having me here. Um, so the Medicare coverage analysis is really the transformation of a clinical research study into a financial tool. So back in 2000, Medicare realized that clinical trials and clinical research was really the way to actually advance science, whether it's for oncology or or diabetes or cardiology. They realized, oh, I'm seeing all these patients that are on a research study, but I'm not sure that they qualify for that. I'm not sure that I should be covering based on my billing coverage requirements. And so in 2000, The president of the United States then issued an executive order that told Medicare that they're going to start covering for patients on participating on a clinical trial because it was oftentimes hard for them to get on those studies. And so as a result, Medicare issued what is called national coverage determinations, and it is actually NCD 310.1, so national coverage determination 310.1. That actually is the... Billing guidelines, if you will, for medi- uh, Medicare coverage under a clinical trial, and so that particular NCD tells us about the, uh, what's actually a covered service, the frequency associated with that, and 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 or when you know that was effective. So it could be something that just took effect yesterday. So that was you know maybe. In, it just So it, it tells you all those pieces about that. So sure. as a result of that particular issuance of the NCD back in the year 2000, there, um, there came the fact that you have to figure out, okay, what's covered and what's not, right? right? So in order to do that, Medicare says, well, I think we need a coverage analysis. So we need that someone to actually transform that particular study requirements into something that I, I can see that it's a covered service, or it's not a covered service. If it's not a covered service, then your study sponsor, whether it's a pharmaceutical company, the federal government is gonna be responsible for covering that charge. And so that's kind of what the Medicare coverage analysis does is is really just a tool that transforms your study into a financial document so that the billing department or whoever's working on your, your claims processing understands this is covered by Medicare and this is not covered
1: and my study sponsor is going to be
0: covered. So it just makes
1: that differentiation between that. Great. And you mentioned um, a protocol, a study protocol. Now I have an understanding of what that is. Some of our listeners might not know if they're not involved in research. Can you just briefly tell us what is a study protocol in the context of a clinical research study?
0: Sure. So you'll hear study protocol, you'll hear a clinical trial, you'll hear call a clinical research study. Those are all the same. They're synonymous with the same thing. It is an actual design of a object that they wanna study. So it could be an investigational drug that showed promise in a basic science lab where the FDA looked at the the data and said, wow, it is really working in these animal mice models. Let me see how it works in human. Is it safe and effective for humans is what the clinical trials are trying to accomplish. And it really is the pipeline for drugs to become commercially available. And so that's how they start was is in a study protocol, or a clinical trial design, the designer can be an investigator, so a faculty member who's really interested in clinical research, or it can be a pharmaceutical company who actually will design the study and then come to academic medicine or other organizations to actually try to get the patients so they can prove the hypothesis of the safety and effectiveness of that drug.
1: Yeah, so it's kind of what we all learned in in junior high, probably, or middle school, is this scientific method, right, where you propose a hypothesis, and this is what scientists do, and in medicine, you're doing the same thing, you're trying to control certain variables, so that what you're studying is, you want to study what you're studying and not have all these confounding variables and be like, oh, there was improvement, but was it for some other reason? You want to know it was because of this drug or because of this device. And so it's really that protocol, as I understand it, you can correct me, is it, it, it's kind of the scientific reasoning of what you're going to be researching. But it doesn't address what you talked about and what we're talking about in these this series is kind of the finance behind that and the billing. Um, but it says, look, this is what we scientifically want to study. And then you just spoke about the Medicare coverage analysis. You take that document and it might call for, you correct me here, but it might call for a certain number of CT scans over the course of a year or over the course of six months or whatever it is, because you wanna study the effect of that drug on a tumor size or something. I'm making stuff up. But, um, and and so then you have to translate that, oh, CT scan is what, this CPT code, and it's for this reason. Is that part of that coverage analysis? Absolutely.
0: That is definitely part of that coverage analysis. And I do want to step back a second and say that every study has to go through a regulatory review process. And so those studies have to be approved by scientifically and for human subjects protection by the inter- in, uh, Institutional Review Board or that organization's IRB. So you're here IRB. And so that group is responsible for the safety and, uh, of, that, of the patients associated with clinical research.
1: Right. And so that IRB is really important. And there's a whole world of compliance around patient safety and IRBs. But correct me if I'm wrong, IRBs don't get into the weeds on the finances, right? No,
0: they don't. They don't. And so to, go, you know, to answer your question around conversion of that particular study into um, a CPT code, yes, that's exactly what happens. So the individuals who are reading that study look and picking out those things that are going to cause or impact the patient's bill that's what you're looking for. Something that's going to get into that claims process and get into your revenue cycle and therefore impact a patient's bill. So it's something that's going to have a CPT code. It's going to come off of your institutional charge master. Those type of um, things is the conversion of that science to finance.
1: Yeah. And before we get into kind of the skill set and hiring the right people, tell me why it's important. I, You probably know better, but I'm aware of some some enforcement that has happened in the past. The one I remember was many years ago, and I think it was a self-disclosure at Rush University. So I went to medical school in Chicago and across the street, I went to the University of Illinois in Chicago. Rush was literally across the street. We had two medical schools right there. And um, I believe they, they had some potential issues with their, doing or not doing a coverage analysis. Do you remember those details or any other enforcement yes, that you wanna share? You're
0: exactly right. It was a self-disclosure and it was Rush University and they were not doing a coverage analysis. So the consequence of not doing that is the claims department and that revenue cycle did not realize these patients were on studies. So what they were doing was sending those claims out the door, just processing claims as normal. But the study sponsor was also covering some of those test or procedures. So the Medicare coverage, if they had done that, the Medicare coverage analysis would have told that revenue cycle team that, hey, wait, this particular st- uh, CT scan is being covered by the study sponsor. Do not send that out to the patient or the patient's insurance. And so that was the, the crux of that, of that particular compliance issue that occurred. And so that's the reason why you have to have a Medicare coverage analysis, because it is used for so many different things. It is used to tell and inform the claims department that this is particular. This is a coverage. This is a uh, clinical trial that we're going to have patients enrolled in. We're going to route these items to patients' insurance or uh, the or the patient because it is something that is approved for Medicare coverage or. The study sponsor has agreed to cover it. So it's really, you know, in a document that helps that revenue cycle understand what they can and cannot bill. And then the other one, uh, the other part it does is it helps um, the budgeting process. So it helps when you're trying to develop a study budget and negotiate with that sponsor so that you are only sending to the actual um, study sponsor those things that insurance won't cover.
1: Yeah. Oh, you mean we have to follow a budget? Yes, absolutely. <laughs>
0: there's right. cost associated with everything. We want to know the cost.
1: <laughs> we have to do it on our own personal lives. Uh, there's there's no free meal in, in, in research right. either, right? So someone's got to right. pay for something. Uh, yes. And if you, don't, if you don't set out to do that, the institution ends up eating the cost, right? It's like, we That's did right. the CT scan. No one's going to pay us for it now. Well, we're out the cost. And so being diligent up front really, really helps with that. And I think in the rush example, they had a, a financial settlement um, as well. So they did.
0: they did. They went ahead and self-disclosed. They had a financial settlement, but they came. They became really a shining example of how that we the, the fact that we really need to do a coverage analysis at the beginning because it sets the stage for the having a compliant billing program down the line.
1: Exactly. And, I, and by no means am I trying to disparage rush. They actually did the right thing, right? Yes, they, 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 sell, they found this themselves, I believe, yeah. where they were doing their own. Like That's what a compliance program is supposed to do. It's supposed mm-hmm. to, to do a monitoring and auditing, find issues and then correct them. And so kudos to them for, for finding the issue. And I just mm-hmm. remembered that that kind of was a, a springboard for a lot of focus on this area. Um, In clinical research billing and it's it's been a focus ever since and so there's lots of work done done here and so thanks for sharing that. Um, So now you were probably involved in in hiring people to do coverage analyses. What do you look for, how do you develop that skill set, what do you need in the skill set to do this well. Right.
0: Yeah. Well, CJ, I tried everything because <laughs> I was trying to understand exactly that question. What skill set is really need to really optimize that process? Because, again, it's the foundation for so many other things downstream uh, within that revenue cycle. And so when I first started um, being as a director of the clinical research finance group, it was more of people with a business background. So whether it was someone who had, um like a management degree or an accounting degree. And don't get me wrong, I'm a CPA. But I, you know, made sure that I immersed myself into understanding regulations and quickly realized that they had a difficult time converting that scientific document into something that's actually finance because they didn't understand the science. Well, we decided, okay, let's try nurses. Let's try nurses who don't wanna be on the floor anymore. Let's start study coordinators who actually are also already have exposure to that, revenue, to that um, clinical research side of the umbrella. And then the thing that we found that worked the best was actually MDs from foreign countries because wow. they were coming into the United States or they are coming to the United States as sometimes data coordinators. And so they're sitting there punching numbers behind the scenes with this fast wealth of knowledge and you're doing, wait, that's a different, yeah, I can use you for something else. And so we actually started using those individuals from foreign countries because they don't wanna pursue the medical license here in the United States. They just wanna contribute to research. And so once we utilized them, we quickly realized all we had to do was teach them the Medicare regulations around billing. And here's that process, but they were able to really Immerse themselves in the study, pull out those pieces that are impacting the billing, the billing of a patient, the patients, and then look up and look, medic, look it up in Medicare's database of what covered items are there are, and still interpret it very well because they understood the science. Yes. And so they that marrying of that medical that person who has an MD from a foreign country with the coverage analysis process really was. Wow, that that was really good because we were assured, first of all, that that interpretation from science to finance was happening and was happening in an efficient and effective manner. And then the fact that they were, you know, understanding how, what the Medicare regulations stated was also really helpful.
1: Yeah. So and then are, were those MDs, you also trained them a little bit in, in coding? Were they picking the codes? Was, are the codes picked from somebody else? How is the coding? Because is in the coverage analysis. Don't you list like you know the procedure or the lab CT scan or you know this pathology study or whatever, and then you list a CPT code. Is that right?
0: That is correct, absolutely. So yes, and so you know the actual CPT code pieces of it. We 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 did teach them some. We had um, an individual who has a who has a CPC certification, and so we actually helped had her teach them. Here are some of the CPT codes. Here's how you immerse themselves. So everybody's desk reference was that CPT code manual. So we refresh those every year, but we had that as a definite reference for them. So they they could actually interpret that and make sure that the CPT code they were typing in and putting down was the actual right one. So that was, you know, it's a little bit of a manual process. So you always wanna have a Q and A process at the end. But those individuals really, you know, help that and change that process. I I have to say that it does take a long time to train them, though, because that conversion just first of all, introducing the concept, because most people don't understand it. Like, okay, so you have to introduce the concept. And then that revenue cycle, having them understand the revenue cycle is is also important. And then how we're laying that coverage analysis, so to speak, on top of that revenue cycle was also a process that we did with them and walk them through that process. So that entire time from the time we actually onboarded them the first day till the time that they were actually able to make an effective impact on our actual production cycle was anywhere from six to nine months, depending wow. on the actual knowledge of that person, that the experience that they came in with right. or the, or, it's just the speed of their learning. So, but it was an average of six to nine months. And so that is a long time to have someone in a training program. So we, you know, but so we decided that we needed bench players too. So we would also cross train other individuals in it within our department. So that way we always had someone sitting there that knew the coverage analysis enough to to truly pick it up and run with it, should we had a person that decided that they were going to to do another career path or you know move right. on to another department.
1: Fascinating, and I know you're doing some work to try to educate folks um, through a uh, university and uh, a boot camp. It is can you tell us a little bit about those efforts, and will, will those boot camps? Focus on medical coverage analyses and, and this type of stuff as well?
0: Yes, absolutely. So I partnered with the University of Houston's um, executive um, development program and to create a three-day boot camp designed specifically to teach individuals about the financial management of a clinical research study or just help educate individuals who are interested in a career in clinical research finance. So that three-day boot camp takes you in-depthly through the Medicare coverage analysis. Why is it necessary? How do you create one? How do you read Medicaid, Medicare's actual database of coverage? Um, and then it goes into the budgeting process, the billing process kind of teaches them beginning to end. So study sub-concept down to the termination of that study what that financial management looks like. And so those three-day boot camps will start in September of 2022, and they will be offered in person as well as virtual um, throughout the, probably in the next year or so. And then I, I've only pushed out for a year right now. And so sure, I have sure. the dates planned starting September and monthly through there. So if you go to University of Houston's executive development website, you'll see those particular classes
1: offered. Right. And, you know, because I worked at MD Anderson with Mary, I know that 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 medical center in Houston, it's just. It's like a it's like a mecca for, for yes. research and healthcare. Yes. And so there's probably a lot of people that'll be interested there, but throughout Texas and throughout the whole country will we'll have interest in that. So thanks for sharing that.
0: Yeah, um, we decided to offer it in person as well as virtual just for that purpose, because some people may not be comfortable coming in person and, um, still, but also because there is a, such a needed area, there's very few training classes. If you go out and Google clinical research finance, there's very few training classes for that particular uh, financial management side. And so really trying to get the the knowledge and the education out there to not only the Texas Medical Center, but to the population at large that's actually doing clinical research.
1: Yeah, so we've we've talked a lot about Medicare coverage analysis. Do you have to do a similar process for other payers or do you have much information on like Medicaid? What do you do for Medicaid? What do you do for commercial? My, My guess is with commercial, I can't imagine they get too in the weeds with that, but you tell me a little bit about those other payers. Yeah.
0: So we leverage, that's a really good question. So we leverage Medicaid when it came to some of our patient populations. So we have a pediatrics you know, award where we were looking at that actual Medicaid side of it as well. So that we kind of import kind of, Blended the two together, but the other thing that we had was a very informed managed care contracting group within uh, MD Anderson, and they, you know, realized that a lot of the managed care contracts that we had in place with our various payers, Blue Cross, Bushio, United, Aetna, to name a few, were very similar to what we did with Medicare. Um, so that Medicare coverage analysis was a broad brush for the rest of the actual insurance populations, because that was one of the big questions when we first started kind of proliferating the clinical research billing program throughout MD Anderson was, do we need to do a coverage analysis for all the various major payers that we see in our right. portfolio? And you know, at first we thought we were gonna do that, but then we did an analysis and we determined that. So that would be my recommendation to anyone listening who's asking the same question for their organization, really look at your managed care contracts and what have you negotiated with those managed care contractors Is it similar to what we already have covered as relates to Medicare? You know, do you have some of the same coverage that's there? And so if that's the case, then that Medicare coverage analysis should be sufficient by itself. If not, then you might want to work with your compliance department to understand, okay, what's my risk of not doing that?
1: Right. And, you know, I know in in oncology and cancer care, a lot of patients, it's almost the, you can maybe tell me percentages, but it's almost the norm for patients to be on some sort of trial, um, which may be a variation of the drugs originally approved use or something, but yeah. really the, those are the ways that most people are treated. Is, is that accurate and or am I off base on that?
0: No, that is accurate. So that off-label use is something that we see a lot of. So they you know take a commercially available agent and decide they want to combine it with another commercially available agent to see Its effectiveness on lymphoma or leukemia, depending on what they're, you know, looking what's what disease they're actually researching, and so that combination is considered investigational. Those studies have to go through that regulatory review of the by the institutional
1: review board as well. Uh, So, Mary, you know, my memory—if my memory is serving me right—I recall that, like when it comes to some drugs and things, when you're actually determining if something's covered. I recall like a compendia or a collection of various compendia that you could reference to determine some coverage that Medicare allowed you to use some of those types of things. Is that accurate? And if so, could you shed a little bit of light on that?
0: That is very accurate. So for oncology, it's the NCCN guidelines and it's the National Cancer Compendia. I forget what the other one says. Four of it. It's actually that particular bit of evidence, if you will, that says that this is being, this is really effective for this particular treatment uh, uh, disease that they're studying. And so they would use, we could leverage that compendia as long as it was sitting in the right category. So the right categories, when you open that compendia, there's like a category A, there's category B, as long as it was sitting in category A, we could certainly do that because that meant that Medicare was really looking closely at that. And they were more than likely going to issue a coverage for that particular treatment.
1: I see. Yeah, and so I think that probably also lends to what you were talking before about uh, MDs doing some of that work that, that they may be more comfortable. One of the things I wanted to ask about kind of um, a coverage analysis is you're looking at things from a frequency perspective, like a CT scan, you know, maybe it's normal to do a CT scan for a certain disease once a year or once every six months, but the study may require it multiple times, like maybe every month. So part of that analysis is frequency. The other part is maybe, you know, diagnosis and reason for doing the CT scan. Is that a part of the analysis? And can you talk a little bit about that? Yes,
0: it's actually, that is the beginning of the the analysis. So once you determine that it's actually something that's going to impact a patient's bill and it's, it's, we have to determine coverage. So is it in the Medicare coverage database? If it is, then we're going to be looking at the frequency at which it is actually in that particular study. And so that coverage analysis will, will have the frequency information based on that study requirement. And so you're gonna be looking at that. And then one of the other things we we look at also is the disease. So what type of disease are we studying and is that particular indication covered for that disease?
1: Gotcha. So, because you mentioned earlier the NCD 310.1, I think you said. Um, so, are you also relying on other NCDs or LCDs? Because I know there's LCDs, you know, for CT scans. So, are you looking at some of those to help determine coverage? Or are you do you stick mainly with that 310.1?
0: So, we are looking not only at the NCD, but also the LCD. So, those local coverage determinations that are issued by the regional MAC. Um, so for Texas, our regional MAC is Novitas. So we're looking at Novitas' guidelines as it relates to their coverage or their coverage of a CT scan or whatever procedure we're looking at. Thankfully, ninety-five percent right. of what our local MAC has as a covered item is also covered by our NCD, and so we have very few adjustments to make there. I know some other regions have more adjustments because their uh, MAC has issued more restrictive LCDs, and so that it's going to be region by region depending on who your LCD is issued by. Oh,
1: that's such good information because you you mentioned this NCD for clinical research uh, 310.1 which is national but it doesn't get into the weeds about every type of service it it i think probably talks more generally about like what's a qualifying trial and those sorts of things right
0: well yeah it does actually have the the um the the weeds so to speak okay. but it does Medicare has actually done really good. I I think in the last two years, they've kind of blended the LCD and the NCD. So you can actually put in the, um, let's say we want to look at an echocardiogram and see how often I can do that. So you put that information into their database, but when you pull it up, it Uh, actually will ask you, are you looking to look at the one in North Carolina or in Montana or in Texas? And so you can actually click into those local uh, coverage determinations pretty quickly in addition to looking at Medicare's coverage of that particular echocardiogram
1: gotcha yeah that is helpful because yeah uh, you, yep we have listeners all over and so that's important folks is as you're doing these types of things make sure you're you're also um, doing what Mary said and using their database to, to find those coverage yes. uh, requirements it's,
0: It is so helpful
1: <laughs> Yeah well awesome um, so we're getting a little bit towards the end of, of this second podcast um, I want to make sure I've asked you all the right questions as it relates to coverage analysis any last minute thoughts or, uh, things that I may have left out that are important.
0: Yes, um, communication again is really key. I know I said it in the first podcast. I will emphasize that again. But truly understanding in this in this particular case, the Medicare coverage analysis. Truly understanding your study requirements and being able to take those and translate that in from the actual study document itself. So that scientific piece to act, the actual financial side is so important here, and not missing tests and procedures that you should be picking up when you're doing that Medicare coverage analysis. So really understanding your study requirements and moving and translating that into the financial management document, um, that coverage analysis is really key.
1: Yeah, and I guess I should have asked this too, as far as where in the timeline you do this coverage analysis... I'm assuming you're doing it before you sign an agreement with a sponsor so they know what's covered and what, I mean, you have to do that earlier in the process, not later, right?
0: Absolutely, so it is recommended that as soon as that study is submitted, to, uh, into the regulatory pipeline for a scientific and a human subject safety review, you want to start that coverage analysis. You want to start that financial management um, cycle as well. And so you start the coverage analysis. It proceeds into the budget pieces. And then of course, once this, the budget is is you know, approved and negotiated. Then once you start enrolling patients, that Medicare coverage analysis becomes a billing grid within the electronic health record to drive those charges to the appropriate places and let the claims department know that this is actually something that's going to be paid for by the study sponsor or it's a routine care approved by Medicare to be billed out to to the patient or the patient's insurance.
1: Gotcha. And is that, so is this kind of financial work that we've been talking about done in a parallel path As the IRB approving for safety, patient safety and appropriateness, or does one happen in a linear fashion, one before the other?
0: No, it is parallel. So that's a very good question. It is recommended that is done parallel to that regulatory review. So you have the financial process going down the same pathway as the regulatory. And hopefully by the time everything that study is approved, your finance is finished. Your your study is negotiated with the sponsor, contract signed, and you're ready to begin enrolling patients as soon as it, the study is
1: IRB approved. And is this general process a thirty day process, sixty day, one week? What I know it can probably vary depending on the complexity, but you know, it, when does a red flag go up when it's taking more than? X number of days.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, when it's taking anything more than a hundred days is kind of the norm in the industry now. You know, okay. we tr- we're trying to truly get these studies activated in ninety days or less, because you think about it, our ultimate goal is to truly treat the patient with these novel compounds, and it, you know, right. you really want to impact that patient's treatment. And that's, that's what ultimately determines how effective and safe this drug is, is our ability to get it to the bedside as quickly as possible. And so it's usually we're shooting anywhere uh, for under a hundred days is what we're shooting for.
1: Okay. That's good. Good ballpark. I wasn't exactly sure how long this is taking nowadays. So Mary, this has been really great information. And um, so I'm just so grateful for you to to be here and to share your expertise. And and we have one more podcast. We're going to do a third the third podcast in this three-part series. So um, we hope you all will will listen to that. Thank you so much, Mary.
0: You're welcome, CJ. Thank you for having me. I I truly enjoy sharing my knowledge and informing others about the financial management of clinical research.
1: Thank you. And thank you all for listening. Uh, Listen again to our last podcast on this um, clinical research topic. Thanks, everyone.
0: Compliance Conversations is sponsored by Healthicity. Healthicity designs software and services that simplify compliance and auditing challenges that reduce your risk and save you money. Where others see complexity, we see simplicity. For more information, visit healthicity.com.